Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Galatians. In this session, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. And to make sure we are tracking with where we're at in the letter, let's just review the context. In chapter 3, Paul began to really tackle the argument, the theological argument of the Galatians. So beginning in 3.1, Paul dealt with the Galatians' experience, particularly how do they receive the Spirit, to make the point they received it by faith. And then 3.6 through 4.7 really is deep theological argumentation showing how in the story of the Bible, that's the way it was always supposed to be. Faith was the priority because it was by faith that Abraham received the promises. And so 3.6 through 4.7 is theological argumentation to counter the Judaizers' teaching in order to make sure that uh, the Galatians really understand the truth. Here in 4, 8 through 20, we make a shift now back specifically to the Galatians and to their situation. And what we have in these verses that we're going to look at in this session is really specific appeal. This is application. This is direct appeal to the Galatians, expressing Paul's heartfelt concern for them. All right, so that's the, the what this section is all about. Let's take a look at the first handful of verses, 4, 8 through 11, where what Paul says in those verses is essentially this. He, he makes the point that even though the Galatians have moved from slavery to sonship, what they're considering doing in, in moving to Judaism is, or adding Judaism onto Jesus, is really, uh, it amounts to a return to slavery. So, they, they left slavery, became sons, as he argued at the end of the last uh, session that we looked at, and now they're actually considering going back to slavery. That's the way Paul understands this, and this shows us why Paul is so afraid for them, why he's so concerned for them, why he has spoken so strongly in this letter. Let's listen to exactly what he says here, beginning in chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writes, however, at that time, and so contrasting what um, what had happened before, right? Like they're, they're in 4, 1 through 7, he talked about how they had become children of God and now they could cry out to God, Abba, Father. Well, prior to that, um, before their conversion, that's what we're talking about here in 4, 8. However, at that time when you did not know God, prior to your conversion, you were slaves, and that word slaves is important. It was first introduced there at the, in chapter 4, and the idea of being enslaved to the elementary things. We'll see that show up again here. So now we're going to take that imagery and say, this is your former way of life. Before you came to Christ, you were slaves to that which by nature are no gods at all. A typically Jewish way of describing idols. And so, as Paul is addressing the Galatians, this is really important for us to make sure we hear the force of what he's saying. Paul is speaking to people who worshipped idols before they came to Christ, which means he's, he's specifically speaking primarily to not Jews, but Gentiles, and that's really important. So these Gentiles were idolaters. They were pagans prior to becoming Christians, and Paul says they were enslaved to their idols, to their false gods. Let's keep reading now in verse 9. He says, but now, now referring to their conversion, now that you have left paganism and idolatry and you have become followers of Jesus, but now that you have 
come to know God, or rather be known by God, like you've come to know the true God. They had lots of gods prior to becoming followers of Jesus, but they didn't know the true God, the one true creator God of all things. And so he says, now that you've come to know God, or better really, you've come to be known by God, by which he means not that God also knew you existed, but you've entered into relationship with God. You've become his child, you've become his son. So to be known in this sense is to enter into this love relationship with God. So now that you've, you've come to enter into this relationship with God, how is it, and here's the question that, he, that really is at the heart of his appeal, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. That's verses, the second half of verse 9 down through verse 11. Notice the question. How is it that you turn back again? You return to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. And then he lists off in verse 10, just kind of in general terms, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's spoken very generally about really the the ritual calendar so that it could apply to paganism as well as Judaism. Um, so that in their former pagan life, they had a ritual calendar and in, in moving towards adding Judaism to their Christianity, they'll have a ritual calendar if they choose that, right? That's what he's talking about, the ritual calendar of both paganism and Judaism. And so he speaks very, uses very general terms to speak about it. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain, that my, my labor in bringing you into existence, bringing you to Christ has been empty and pointless. Now, Let's just reflect on what Paul has just said, because what he has written in these words would be absolutely shocking to his former self when he was a Pharisee. It would be absolutely shocking to the Judaizers, and it would be absolutely shocking to the Jews of his day. Why? Well, because here you have people who are formerly pagans. They have come to faith in Jesus as Messiah, and now they're being uh, told they need to actually keep the Jewish calendar and add Judaism to Jesus. And so, essentially, they're going to go to Judaism, become Jews. That's the whole point of the Judaizers' work among them, to make Jews of them. And Paul speaks of that as a return, a return to the weak and worthless elementary things. In order to feel the force of what Paul has written, you need to picture in your mind two columns, all right? So picture two columns. One column is labeled elementary things. The other column is labeled Jesus. And then in the elementary thing column, you need to write the word paganism. That's where these Galatians started. They started with paganism. And then draw a, a, an arrow from paganism into the second column and imagine the word Jesus. They move from paganism to Jesus and that's presently where they're at but what they're being instructed to do, what they're seriously considering doing is now moving from Jesus to Judaism. So now back in your elementary thing column you've got to write Judaism and you've got to draw an arrow from Jesus to Judaism in the elementary thing column. And notice what that does. As you picture those two columns, you have paganism 
and Judaism in the same column. On the same side of the ledger, you have paganism and Judaism. And Paul has lumped them together under the heading of elementary things. And that, my friends, would be incredibly shocking and uh, deeply offensive to Paul's former self, to the Judaizers, and to the Jews of Paul's day. What in the world is Paul doing when they are, by saying they're returning to to Judaism? Well, they're not returning to Judaism. They left paganism and they're heading to Judaism. And as far as the Judaizers are concerned, that's progress. That's going forward. But for Paul, it's going backwards. Why? Well, it's going backwards because both paganism and Judaism are elementary things. And that's the key we need to understand. When they were pagans, they were, they were living under the ABCs of religion, elementary forces, elementary things, elementary religions, elementary ways. And to go to Judaism is to go back to elementary things. And that's why those two can be put in the same column, is they're both elementary things. Judaism was an elementary thing. It was, it was true. It wasn't It's not like paganism and Judaism are the same thing. Paul would never have said that. Paul didn't believe paganism and Judaism were the same type of thing. But they both were ABCs. They were elementary school. They were, you know, the the stuff for spiritual minorhood, not spiritual adulthood. And thus, they're in the same category. Not only that, though the way Paul describes them here is, and they both effectively uh, put you into slavery. They were a form of being under guardians and managers, as he says at the beginning of chapter 4. They were being under custody and being controlled by the elementary things. And so here he says, to which you desire to be enslaved again, like you're going back to slavery. So you've left slavery for sonship, and now you want to return to slavery again. That makes no sense. And Paul is speaking in very stark striking language in order to get his point across that Judaism, now that Messiah has come, that was part of the early days, the ABCs of God's working with people, but now Messiah has come and we've moved to spiritual adulthood and that's found in Jesus the Messiah. And so in your elementary thing column that you pictured, you need to you need to also include the word slavery, that both paganism and Judaism were a form of slavery or at least being under the control of guardians and managers. And in the Jesus column, we have, we have sonship and we have freedom and we have blessing and promise and faith. Those are the things of spiritual adulthood. And that's the reason Paul says, I, I fear that my, my labor over you is in vain. You, you want to return to slavery and leave sonship. And Paul is deeply concerned for their well-being because of this. And so in verse 12 down through verse 20, what you get is very heartfelt, very emotion-laden language of direct appeal. Paul urges them to remember their relationship with him, to remember the connection they have with him, and to renew their friendship and their love for him and their identification with him and his teaching. That's what we get in verses 12 through 20. In fact, Ben Witherington in his commentary on Galatians says here in verses 12 through 20, Paul pulls out all the emotional stops as he appeals to them to seriously consider what they're doing and to seriously consider returning to Paul and to identification with Paul and the gospel he taught. 
And so he writes in verse 12, I beg of you, this is Paul's direct appeal, I beg of you, brothers, become as I am, for I have become as you are. In other words, Paul says, I have become free from my Jewish heritage, my Jewish roots in the Jewish law. I have moved on from that to faith in the Messiah and found my identity in him. And I'm begging you to be right there with me. Become as I am, for I've become like you. I, I've become, I mean, essentially, Paul's like, I, I can eat pork. I can eat bacon, right? I can... I, I'm not bound by my Jewish heritage, and I want you now, you're, you're thinking going back to Judaism, I want you to stay right where I am. And then he says, you've done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the very first time. And so he recalls their conversion experience. He recalls when he first came to them and that, that it was because of some sort of bodily illness. And there's been uh, loads of speculation over what that means and what that illness was, and we just don't know. The book of Acts, when it records Paul's first ministry among the Galatians, doesn't tell us anything about an illness. So we really have no idea what kind of illness it was. Perhaps it was malaria from uh, the low-lying regions around the sea before he moved up into kind of the upper highlands where... uh, Pisidian Antioch and Derby and Lystra and some of those uh, churches were that he planted on his first missionary journey. Maybe that. We're just not sure. It just apparently some sort of bodily ailment uh, led him uh, to preach the gospel to him for the first time. And we don't know the details on that. So he says, you know it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you didn't despise or loathe. In other words, think back to when we first met, O Galatians, and I came to you, and I, I, was in a, I was in a bad way, and I wasn't in a good shape, and it was hard for you, and it was a trial, and a difficulty for you, and yet you didn't despise me, you didn't loathe me. The idea of loathe literally is, is to spit in disgust at, right? Like you didn't turn up your nose at me or anything like that. Instead, he says uh, that you actually welcome me. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Your reception of me and your welcome of me, even though it wasn't easy for you, and even though I was in a bad way, it was warm and affectionate and honoring. I mean, you you treated me as I was a messenger from God, as if I was Jesus himself, you received me so warmly and so completely. And so he asked in verse 15, so where then is this sense of blessing that you had? Like that, that sense of goodwill, that sense of blessing towards me, that sense of caring for me in my desperate situation. Where did that go? Like what happened? For he says, way back then when we first met, for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. And some have taken Paul's words there to mean, oh, whatever his body, bodily ailment was, it must have been an eye condition or something like that. Possible? It's possible, but it's not necessary. Like, in American English, we have an idiom that says, you would have given me your right arm. doesn't mean there's an arm problem. It just means you would have done anything you could for me. And it's very likely that that's what these words mean here, that you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. It means you would have done anything for me. Um, that shows how far they would have gone. And so it doesn't necessarily mean there was an eye problem for Paul. It's possible. It's just not necessary, all right? And so we don't know exactly what the problem was. We do know 
that the Galatians welcomed him warmly, and that they would have they went above and beyond to take care of him to the point where Paul says, "You you would have even given your eyes for me if necessary." Um, and so, verse sixteen, Paul states with incredible irony, he says, "Have I therefore become your enemy simply by telling you the truth?" Like. I came to you. It was difficult. You received me warmly. You went above and beyond. You would have given your eyes for me. And now I've told you the truth and somehow I've become your enemy? That's the force of verse 16. And there's deep irony in that. But like somehow by simply preaching the truth about Jesus to you, I've become an enemy to you? Paul is incredulous. That makes no sense. And so he's appealing to them. Think about what you're doing. Think back through our relationship. Remember where we've come from and what we've been through together, O Galatians. And then in verse 17, he he directly describes how he thinks about, feels about what, what really is going on with those Judaizers. And so he says, they... He doesn't identify them, but it, but we all know who they are. The, the Galatians would have known exactly who they were, right? They means the Judaizers, these people who are coming to you and telling you, you have to become Jews and keep the Jewish rituals in order to really be saved and to really be part of God's family. They, that's who we're talking about. They eagerly seek you, um, but not commendably. The idea is, they, they're seeking after you, they, they're curring your favor, right? They're trying to get your attention and make you feel special and make you feel valuable. They're doing all of that, but they're not doing it commendably. Literally, they're not doing it in a good way. Uh, they're not doing it for good reasons. They're not doing it out of good. That's the idea. Not out of a good heart, not out of good ambition, not in a good way. But instead, Paul says in verse 17, they wish to shut you out. That phrase, shut you out, um, refers to like cutting off fellowship with from somebody else. That's the force of that, that word. So to, to cut off relationship with somebody else. So they're shutting the Galatians out from whom? Well, presumably, as we can tell in context, it seems, they're shutting them out from Paul and his ministry team and the gospel that he taught. So they're cutting off the Galatians' relationship with Paul and everything he taught in very much the same way cults are notorious for doing in our day and age, how they, you know, they will try to shut you out from anybody who would tell you something different and who would make you think in a different way and challenge you, they'll make you shut out your family because your family's trying to keep you from them, right? That's the idea. These Judaizers are coming to you. They're curring your favor. They're making you feel so special and valuable with the end result that now you have to depend on them and your life revolves around them and they're shutting you off from, cutting you off from Paul and his team. That's the idea. They, they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them, in order that you may have to look to them, depend on them, listen to them, and they're going to become the center of everything you need for uh, understanding God their way. That's what they're actually doing. Paul clarifies in verse 18, it's, it's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. Paul's sort of doing that. He's seeking them. He's appealing to them, right? And he's saying, that's not necessarily a bad thing to have people that are seeking you, are interested in you, right? Like who, who speak of your value, as long as they're doing it in a good way for good reasons, according to the truth. And so he says, it's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I'm present with you. 
Like, I've sought you when I was with you. I'm seeking you now. And I'm, uh, I'm doing it in a good way for good reasons. And so, verse 19, he says, my children. In fact, this is the only place in Paul's letters where Paul actually speaks directly to his audience this way. My children. The apostle John is well known for using this word for uh, the people he writes to, but not Paul. This is unique in Paul's letters. My children, my uh, my children with whom I'm again in labor until Christ is formed in you. It's like I'm having to give birth to you all over again. That's the way it feels here. That's the kind of um, pain I'm experiencing. That's, that's the kind of agony I'm experiencing. That's the kind of anticipation I'm experiencing. It's like I'm giving birth to you all over again until Christ is formed in you. That, my friends, is the heart of Paul's ministry. For Christ to be formed in them, for Christ to be formed in us, means his character, his way of life, that everything becomes about him until until Christ is formed in you, he says. And then verse 20, But I, I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. In other words, man, I wish I could come and, and I could speak face to face and we could actually, you could hear the tone of my voice and I could really see the look in your eyes and I could understand what you're talking about. I, I wish I could change the tone of my voice. I'm just perplexed. I'm confused about you. I, I don't get what's going on. I don't get why you're doing what you're doing. I don't get how you could be listening to these people after all we've been through. I'm confused about you and I, I wish I could be with you and change my tone with you because Paul has spoken very strongly in this letter. In some places, he's spoken very, almost harshly in this letter because he wants to get their attention. And so he's like, man, I wish I could be with you and we could have a different kind of dialogue about this because I just this just doesn't make any sense to me. And as we wrap up this section, just uh, one reflection that really stands out to me in this whole section is this, that Paul is not like a dispassionate proclaimer of Jesus. His heart is in this and his heart is for these people. And uh, for those of us who teach or preach or lead or shepherd or even with regard to our own kids and their walk of faith, that this matters and this is important and that's why our heart is so involved in it. And so in order for us to actually lead people to maturity in Christ, to lead people to Christ being formed in them, it is, um, it is natural and normal and good for us to care, and for our heart and our emotions to be involved in it. And we see that here with Paul, that Paul, Paul's heart is in this. And Paul cares deeply about the choices these people are making because this matters. He wants to see them come to maturity in Christ and have Christ formed in them. He wants them to grow as children of God. And so he pour, pours out his heart for them and pulls out, as Witherington said, all the emotional stops because he's appealing to them to try to wake them up and to get them to realize the seriousness of what they're doing, even in terms of their relationship with him and not just their relationship with God. And I think that's terribly important for, for any of us who who shepherd and care for and lead, whether it's a small group, whether it's a small group of teens, whether we mentor some people in Christ, whatever it is, to, to know that it's appropriate for us to share our heart with them, that the best caring for and pastoring of, not even in a formal pastor sort of way, but just pastoring and caring for, for other believers, the best pastoring includes heartfelt care for other people and the ability to express our heart for them as Paul does here.